In our study of Second Peter, we've come to the third and final chapter. And, and clearly there is a, a transition in Peter's argument and in his presentation. We looked at this last week, but by way of review, how does chapter 3 fit in with the rest of what he's written in this epistle? We saw four connections uh, last week. The first was a connection with chapter 2. And I think the most obvious connection is the word command. Because in chapter 2, he says of the false teachers that they have turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. And then in verse number 2 of chapter 3, the believers to me is writing, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. If you were to summarize chapter 2, or the theme of it, it would be the power of God to judge and to save. If you would summarize chapter 3, it is the promise of God to come, that one day Jesus will return. In both cases, it seems counterintuitive. It seems contrary to appearances. In chapter 2, the false teachers are prospering. Uh, How can you say that God has the power to judge when in fact he hasn't judged the false teachers, at least not at that point? And how can you say that Jesus is returning when at this point it's been over three decades and he still has not yet returned? The second connection was with chapter 1. And this is a much stronger connection. In fact, you could almost see chapter 2 as parenthetical. Because at the end of chapter 1, we find what we find at the beginning of chapter 3. We see the pairing of the apostles and the prophets. And then the place of memory and being reminded. Peter is concerned that the believers to whom he is writing, that they, he's afraid that they might be led astray, led away from the teachings of the prophets and the apostles by these false teachers. And so he wants to remind them of what is true. The third connection we looked at was with the previous letter. Because if you look at verse number one of chapter three, He says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. So there is a connection between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Um, The first letter deals with problems from without the church, persecution. This second letter deals with problems within the church, that is, false teachers. In both letters, but certainly more in Second Peter, and we will see this in the weeks to come, he points to the return of Jesus as definitive, that this is what the Christian faith is about. And as we've just heard, as we have remembered the Lord in the Lord's Supper, we are to do this until he comes. That is the point in the future toward which our lives are to be lived. The fourth connection we saw is if we tie it all together, Peter is concerned that right belief lead to right behavior. And so, in verse number one, he talks about wholesome thinking. But as I asked last week, is the Christian faith merely a a theology or a philosophy, a, a way of thinking, that it somehow is not to impact how we behave or what we do? Living when and where we do, I think that that is a very strong temptation. Um, in our culture, the disconnect between belief and behavior is not seen as that important. If there is a, a disconnect, it, it, that's just the way things are. And I'm reminded 
some years ago, I think this is in the 90s, that Time magazine did a, a phone survey of people to find out if they were vegetarian or not, what they thought about vegetarianism. And the survey found that 60%, 60% of the people who said that they were vegetarian had had meat in the previous 24 hours. Well, you, no, you can't be a vegetarian and eat meat. But in our culture, that disconnect is not seen as that important. In the olden days, we used to call it hypocrisy. Today, I think that's just the way things are. Well, for Peter and for Scripture, what we think and how we live are to be connected. And if you remember, in chapter 2, Peter does not critique the theology of the false teachers. Neither does he give a rousing defense of the gospel. Rather, he deals with their behavior because their behavior comes from what they think and what they believe. Now, it would seem strange that now we've come to chapter 3, that he's not concerned at all about Christian behavior, that he picks on the false teachers for their bad behavior, but then he's not that bothered with the behavior of his readers. Uh, We will see that that is not the case. Right thinking and right behavior are to go together. If you would look at verse number two, I just want to point out something. He says, he speaks of the holy prophets and your apostles. We talked about this last week. This is a phrase we find Peter using in the book of Acts. It points to the reality that the prophets were set aside by God, God who is holy, and that what they had to say was important. And those who turned their back on what the prophets had to say were doing something seriously wrong. But what about the phrase, your apostles? It sounds rather odd, because isn't Peter an apostle after all? It is, and as I said last week, this is only an assumption on my part, but Peter wants to impress on his readers that the apostles are the ones with authority in the church. And he wants the readers to ignore these false teachers, and if they've gone after them, to turn back to the church, the authority which is found in your apostles. This is the church of Jesus Christ. In the prophets, we have the words spoken in the past, and in your apostles, the command given by our Lord and Savior. The problem with the false teachers we now find in chapter 3 is that they question the words spoken in the past. And so Peter, we will see in a few minutes, writes about creation, the flood, and judgment, and all of them dependent upon the same word. The Lord willing, next week we will look at the reality of God's promises, his future promises, beginning in verse number 8. Peter will remind his readers that God is not slow in keeping his promises. And then in verses 14, 15, and 16, they deny the authority of Scripture. And here he will mention Paul as someone who is authoritative, someone who has written Scripture. And then at the end, verses 17 and 18, We see the balance between what we believe and how we behave. Briefly, what we looked at last week in verses 3 and 4, that in the last days, scoffers will come. And as we saw last week, that their scoffing is not primarily an intellectual matter. That's how they present it. But Peter sees it as a moral question. It is a lack of morality on their part that causes them to scoff. And then verse number four, the big question, and not only the false teachers ask it, but many Christians have as well, where is this coming? He promised. Um, 
This is the question that they pose, and then they give their reasoning behind it. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. I think their question is legitimate. Their reasoning is not. And so Peter deals with, his response begins with their reasoning, and then he will deal with the issue of their question of when is Jesus coming back. Their flaw, the flaw in their reasoning is a rejection of Scripture, the rejection of the spoken word. Peter will show, we'll see in a minute, that God has stepped into human history once to create the world, secondly to flood it, and thirdly he will come and judge the world in the future. Look, if you would, at verses four. Uh, I'm sorry, verses five, six, and seven. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Peter deals with the first flaw in their reasoning. They have ignored the fact that God deals with his world by means of his word. God uses words. Peter gives us, as I've said, three examples of this to show how vital and important this is. Um, By the way, this is not a new tack uh, for Peter. Um, The false teachers have attacked scripture. And so we find beginning in chapter one that, in fact, he defends scripture and he, he pairs the apostles and the prophets. As in chapter two, we see that Peter's argument is chronological. First creation, then the flood and in the future judgment. So the first is a creation in verse number five. The the first example is where scripture itself starts, the creation of the universe. And the way that God creates is by speaking. If you look at Genesis chapter one, at least 11 times we hear, we read the words God said. I've asked this question before, but have you ever wondered why did God speak? Why did he not simply think the world into existence? Why did he not simply snap his fingers, so to speak? Why this emphasis on the word? This emphasis is so pervasive in scripture that I think we take it for granted. And I think we take it for granted in terms of human existence. Being human is so intimately and so utterly connected to speaking. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That's why we talk, because we are made in the image of a speaking God. God spoke the world, the world into being, and he speaks to those who are made in his image. Consider what it means to be made in the image of God. It is interesting that while God spoke the world into being, when it came time to create mankind, We do not find a statement as such, but rather a dialogue, a conversation. Because God said, let there be light, for example. But for the creation of man, we read, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over the creatures, all the creatures that move along the ground. What we find is a conversation which is consistent with the Christian understanding 
of a triune God, of Trinity, of Father, Son, and Spirit. We have a conversation that is going on in the Godhead between the three members of the Trinity. This is the deliberate word by which God creates. There are times when he says, let there be light. There are other times when we hear him having a conversation. I think what Peter wants us to get, and the false teachers as well, is that the very existence of the world is dependent upon the dependability of God's word. God spoke words, and the world came into being. In speaking, God's will comes into expression, and it makes clear that the universe is not self-existent, or that it somehow struggled for existence, or that it is due to chance, or that it is an extension of God. God spoke, and the world was created. We're also told that God gave names to the light and the darkness. He called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And we see that God assigns to everything its value, it is good, its place, he separated, and thirdly, its meaning, he called it day and night. I would be remiss if I did not mention that God reveals himself also without words, in what is called general revelation. We looked at this at the Bible study last Wednesday night. In creation, we have that wonderful passage in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the earth. I find it fascinating, however, as David describes creation, that, dis- that creation reveals to us who God is. We would say it is the silent revelation. It is the general revelation. But for David, he keeps hearing words. He keeps hearing creation speak. So it is in creation that God reveals himself. It is in conscience that God reveals himself. As Paul writes, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness. And that it is in creativity, as humans create, we're made in the image of a creative God, the creator God. He is revealed in us as we create. There are other aspects as well. There might be a question as, what does Peter mean here when he talks about the fact that the earth was formed out of water and by water? I don't know if you caught that in verse 5. There are a lot of different views as to what this means, but I think three things are clear. Peter has in mind what we read in Genesis chapter 1. God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. That's in verse 6. And then in verse 9, and God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. So I think he's thinking in terms of Genesis 1. But secondly, he is saying that the means of creation is his word. God speaks and the world comes into being. The agent of creation is water. A fascinating thought. And thirdly, Peter points to the result of creation. We have the heavens and the earth. All three of these are important as we come to the next two examples. The importance of the word of God. But the false teachers deliberately forget I think that we should consider that when and where we live, we face a double temptation. The first is to forget or we fail to remember. Um, 
in, in many ways, memory is no longer deemed as important because we have so many devices that will store the memory for us, that we don't actually have to have a memory. We have things that have memory. Uh, of course, you have to remember that you put it in the memory, but um, somehow for us, memory has become separated from doing. And so I can put it on a computer disk and it will be remembered. But if it's not put into practice, then it is, in fact, not remembered at all. I think the second temptation we face is to diminish, to minimize, or even belittle the place of the word. I think we hope for some form of telepathic communication. We'd like to be able, those of us who are older might remember, the Vulcan mind meld, uh, that somehow we might be able to communicate perfectly without using words. We tend in our culture to focus more on image than we do on words. And we embrace the notion that a picture is worth a thousand words. So better to have pictures than to have words. I would argue, and I tell my students this, that we should consider that a word is worth a thousand pictures. We've got it exactly reversed. Words are important. And if we doubt that, then perhaps we should revisit John chapter 1. That when God came into the world, he was known as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Word is important. The second example that he gives is found in verse number six. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Water was the agent of God's creative word, now becomes the agent of his judicial word as he destroys the world. Word is not mentioned directly, at least in the NIV. It is implied. Um, the, The English Standard Version, I think, is much clearer here. And that by means of these, that is, words, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. I just told you that at creation, God spoke and the world was created. I don't think that's new information for most of you. I think we know that. But have you considered the place of God speaking and the flood? If you look at Genesis 6 and 7, Time after time, we are told that God spoke. Genesis 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. Verse number 7. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Verse 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people. And then chapter 7 opens, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark. In creation and in judgment, as seen in the flood, we hear God speaking. We hear the word of the Lord. As important as this is, I think that Peter's his emphasis is somewhere else. See, the false teachers are... are What are they thinking? 
when they make a statement that everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There was, after all, a global flood. And those of you who know anything about history know that things haven't gone on exactly the same way. This is the second time in this letter that Peter has mentioned the flood. In chapter 2, he talks about Noah. But he also mentions it in 1 Peter. The false teachers are hoping they believe in a non-intervening God. That God made the world and he's backed off. And he's not going to judge us at the end of time because he's backed off. He made the world and the world just keeps going on its own. And so we don't need to worry about a future judgment. Because things have just gone on the way that they always have. How sadly wrong they are. The third thing that Peter mentions is the coming judgment. Peter is very careful in his choice of words. God created the heavens and the earth. There he uses the word G in, uh, in Greek. In the flood, what was destroyed was the human world, cosmos. But now when we come to the future judgment, it isn't cosmos like the flood. It is back to the beginning. It is as though Peter is saying, as bad as the flood was, it was a miniature. It was just to be an example of what God will do at the end of time when he will destroy all things. The false teachers don't believe this. They don't buy this. In part because of the stability of creation. In some sense, they are right. Things do go on. The sun comes up, the sun sets. We have the cycles of the moon. Things do continue. They have assumed by this that things will not change, that God will not judge people at the end of time. Because God is not actively judging now, God will not judge in the future. And therefore, for Peter or the apostles to preach a future judgment seems foolish to them. And Peter says no. If you look at verse number seven, it is by the same word. God who spoke and created the world, God who spoke and flooded the planet, is the same God who will judge at the end of time. The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. We will see the Lord willing in verse number 13. A new heaven and a new earth. But for there to be a new heaven and a new earth, the old heaven and the old earth must in fact be destroyed. And here we see that it is not water, but it is fire. In scripture, both water and fire are agents of God's judgment. Uh, If you go back to chapter 2, when he talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, verse number 6, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So we know that God can use either water or fire, and he has done so. But the important issue is the means. It is by the same word. That's Peter answering their reason, the reason that they put up in denying the reality of Jesus' return. Things just continue as they always have. Why would you expect things to change in the future? There will be no future judgment. Now, beginning in verse number 8, Peter will answer their question, where is this coming that he promised? If we were to assign a theme to verses 5, 6, and 7, 
It would be that God is the Lord of creation. He speaks and the world is created. He speaks and the world is flooded. He speaks and the world will be destroyed. If we were to assign a theme to verses 8, 9, and 10, it is that God is the Lord of time. We'll be looking at this next week, but follow along if you would as I read it. Verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. In this passage, Peter brings out a promise from the Old Testament and then a promise from the New Testament. Very much, he does that in his writing. Old Testament, New Testament. He will quote from the Old Testament and then he will explain and then he will quote from the New Testament and he will explain. As I said, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Consistently, Peter has done this because I think following the Old Testament principle, you need two witnesses. You need two witnesses to establish the truth. And so he has produced two witnesses consistently through this book. We have the apostles and we have the prophets. Those of the new covenant and those of the old covenant. And the, and the messages are the same. They do not conflict. So in fact, he can quote from the Old Testament and then quote from the New Testament and the message will be the same. From the Old Testament, he will tell us of God's promised patience, how patient God is. And from the New Testament, the Lord's promised return. The Lord willing, we will look at this next week. The error in part of the false teachers is the rejection of the word of Scripture. We live in a time in which the word has been denigrated and belittled, either directly there's been a direct assault with images so that we are much more comfortable now with images than we are with words. We would rather sort of watch the movie than read the book. Um, yeah, images are what we are much more uh, where we lean to rather than the spoken word. But this is only a direct assault. I think as important is an indirect assault of things like talk radio or television. I don't know if you've noticed, and maybe it's because I'm older than many of you, but it seems that people in our culture have lost the ability to converse. That is, okay, I'm going to talk, and then I'm going to stop, and then you talk. And when you're done, then I will talk again, back and forth. We seem to have lost that. The conversation seems to be people talking at the same time and yelling and just... I think this is as much an assault on the word as the assault of images. We are made in the image of a speaking God, a God who used words, who uses words. I've told you before that I, I don't like the notion, what would Jesus do? I would prefer, what did Jesus do? And what did Jesus do? He spoke. He talked. Consider the demonstration of his power Take healing, for example. I've mentioned it before, how I find it odd that Jesus spent so much time in healing. 
in Matthew 8, we read, When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. By the way, you will notice he drove out the spirits with a word. But why did it take so long? Um, why not just sort of wave his hand you know, over them and then they would all be healed? Well, if you read the next chapter, Matthew chapter 9, we have the story of the woman who had had bleeding for 12 years, an issue of bleeding. She wanted to be healed, but she did not want, if you wish, to converse. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. And if you know the story, Jesus refused for this to be the case. If you read Mark's account, he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. For Jesus to heal, there had to be conversation. There had to be dialogue. It isn't just sort of a snapping of his finger, a waving of his hand. That's why it took him so long to heal, because he wanted to converse. And read of Jesus' healing in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Time and time again, my favorite story is at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, where a man comes up to him and says, if you want to, you can heal me. And Jesus answers, I want to. There's a conversation going on. You may also remember that there are times when those who are sick come up to Jesus, those who are blind come up to Jesus, and Jesus says, so so what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And we think, well, You know, if you're who you claim to be, you know what I want. No, Jesus wants conversation. He wants there to be dialogue. We must take care as God's people to retain the place of words and conversation. I think if we are content to settle for images or impressions, then we lose the place of truth. We face the loss of truth in our own lives including the truth of who God is, what he has done, what he will do. For the false teachers, this is perfect. Let's ignore talking, let's ignore the word, let's ignore scripture, and we can go our own way. No, God made the world by speaking. He judged the world, he spoke, and one day he will speak again. By the way, he has been speaking consistently through his scripture. We need to listen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to worship you, to be engaged in conversation with you. We thank you for the way that you touch our lives and deal with us those times in our lives when we have felt your presence in a dramatic way. When we have had experiences that confirm the truth of who you are and what you've said. 
But may we come to recognize and to remember that you have spoken. You're a God who speaks. And that words are important. That's why Jesus tells us that we will have to give an account for every word we have spoken. Words are important. It is by speaking that you created. It's by speaking that you judge the world. And then you sent your son, the word, into the world. May we as your people take this to heart. Living in a culture that I think has an all-out assault on words. Words are used to manipulate. Images are seen as more important than words. Civil conversations almost seem impossible. May we as your people look to you, to your word, and see what it means to be made in the image of God. I thank you for this time that we could gather together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.